basically you need to listen to the parents. It, for me, unless the parents clearly don't know what a fever is, so they brought that kid in because they had a temperature of 37.0 degrees um, and said they were febrile, you know, they, they've, had, they've had a fever. Yeah. Definitely, and, uh, and you just you always need to listen to them. You need to take everything that they say very, very seriously. Mm. Yeah, once I had this kid in, and the mum was so, so worried, and I was doing that thing. I must admit, I was fobbing her off a bit, mm. and then he had a seizure, <laughs> and she was completely right in in what she said. Yeah. Uh, so I think that observation um, in emergency is really, really important, and it's something we should utilise. So this is why with neonates febrile neonates, all bets are off. Even if they appear well, um, they require not only like a a full septic workup, but also treatment for sepsis and bacterial infection until you have overwhelming evidence to suggest that they don't have sepsis or they don't have a bacterial infection. so that's that's the main. It's it's to do with pretest probabilities, and and then with those numbers, five to thirty percent. I'm just not taking any any risks. No worries. Welcome to the ED channel. Hey, frothers! If you're hearing my voice, that's right. We've got another episode of the EDGM podcast. This week, I'm chatting to Dr. Lewis Trainer, and we are talking about febrile neonates. You're going to love the episode. I'm not going to talk too long. I'm going to crack him once again. If you want to follow me, you can look on Instagram, EGM underscore podcast, uh, and you can download um, the podcast on all your streaming services. Let's crack into this episode. You're going to absolutely love it. You. Tonight, I'm chatting to Lewis. Freaking you. We're stoked. Um, we've been trying to hit up for, I think, a year. I don't know. Yep. It's a year, isn't it? Yeah, you asked me on the um, stairs at Southern Hospital in August 2021. Oh, I remember it. <laughs> and I've held you to it ever since. <laughs> oh, get the knife out of my back. Oh, no, no. <laughs> um, we talked about it in the hallway. I think you just finished a night shift. I swear. Oh, you yeah, got- no, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, I did. I was yeah. coming down the stairs. You were going up them for, yeah, for like, some reason. Hey, bro, let's have a chat. You're like, yeah, sweet. <laughs> um, I just but, wanted to go home. Yeah, yeah. Like, oh, yeah, fine. I'll say yes, whatever. Get out of the hospital. <laughs> no, it's not like that. No. I'm pretty um, sure I asked you. Oh, nah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I'm stoked to have you um, on the podcast. Um, tonight, we're going to be chatting about um, fevers in neonates. Um, mm. And I've got an awesome um, ED doctor who's just... oh. You're a consultant now, so congratulations. Thanks. Yeah, no, it's I think a, been a weird a feeling, but yeah, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> um, so oh, it would be a weird feeling. You've done so much study, bro. Um, yeah, I don't want to talk about that. It's too much. <laughs> too much. And Never you, again. And you've also chosen to study, to sub, have a subspecialty. Is that correct as well? Yeah, I, I decided to um, to go off and do dual training. So just getting a bit more experience in pediatric emergency and pediatric critical care which is i don't know something that i'm very very interested in um and yeah i'm about oh three quarters through the way through the way of that maybe maybe a bit more wow so by the end of it you already are an emergency consultant but you'll be an emergency consultant with a subspecialty in pediatrics yeah that's pretty much it that's the idea a lot of study Oh, no, no. If there was any study in this dual training thing, uh, even if it was like a 10 question pop quiz, I wouldn't have done it. I said, I'm done with exams. I'm not doing it anymore. No more study. So yeah. just, just time in like, um, just time, just time. And honestly, I'm, I'm really happy that I did it. Um, yeah. yeah working at in pediatric ICUs and doing general pediatrics on the ward and seeing some, a lot of things in tertiary pediatric EDs. It's been really really good for my um my own learning and um i enjoy doing it as well so i'm very happy that i that i chose to to go down that pathway um what inspired you to sort of get into medicine what inspired you to um become an emergency doctor yeah so with the emergency thing i think that um my first term as as an intern in the emergency department was with you no way Um, yeah it was with you back in 2013 and I, I went into the term and I was like, oh, 
I really kind of don't want to do this. I don't like the idea of emergency and it was all a bit daunting and, you know, having to see your own patients and work them up and do kind of non-intern things. Um, but then I got into it and like, I've really never looked back. I just loved it. Um, the things that I like about emergency is just the team environment. Like everyone works side by side, like doctor, doctors um, work side by side with nurses side by side with ward clerks, side by side with physios, radiographers, everyone's on a, seems to be on, at least where I've worked is on a first name basis. Um, and everyone works together to kind of make people better. And I'm not saying that doesn't happen on the wards. I'm not saying that doesn't happen in other um, parts of medicine, but I think in the emergency department, it happens much more. Um, and I really, I really enjoy that. Um, the other thing I really like about emergency medicine, or it, I liked it back then as well, was you really, you're working really undifferentiated people up from scratch. You're trying to work out what's wrong with them um, to kind of solve the puzzle um, of their presentation kind of thing and then initiate the management. I, and I like that idea as well. I don't really like someone telling me, hey, this is what's wrong with this patient and you need to treat it. I like to find out things. That's just, that's just me though. Yeah. Um, and of course, love being in recess. Yeah, yeah. I've seen you with your Lewis face on when you're thinking. Yeah, I like doing that. I like thinking. I like yeah. thinking about things and, you know, and like I said, the team thing as well, you can ask any member of the team, hey, guys, I'm a bit stumped about this. What do you reckon is going on? And everyone's everyone's opinion matters to me. Um, I don't think that happens in any other um, part of medicine as much as it happens in the ED. I think it's awesome. A pretty flat hierarchy, but um, your position definitely has a huge impact on that. Um, we're going to get into, um, we're going to find a bit about you more and about your dual training and about ED. Mm. But I want to crack into a topic because I think it's going to be epic. Okay. Um, we're going to be talking about um, fevers in neonates. Um, and one of the things we want to know is what is considered to be a neonate? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. I mean, the answer, the straight answer is any baby that is 28 days of age or less. Okay. Um or four, four full weeks of age. Um, but you just got to, you know, this number is pretty arbitrary um, and it's just basically based on one month, essentially. Someone's kind of pulled it out of the, pulled it out of the air. It doesn't, 20, the 28 days figure doesn't really take into account things like prematurity. So a baby might be 28 days old, but they might've been born at like 35 plus two weeks or something. So really they're less than, uh, a normal 40, 40 week gestation baby. Um, doesn't take into account other things like chronic medical problems that the baby might have or any antenatal issues that they had or, or other things like low birth weight or small for gestational age. Um, the other thing we just got to be aware of with, with the 28 day concept is really there's no physiological kind of moment where a neonate turns into an infant. Yes. And if there was a moment, Who's to say that that occurs at 28 days? You know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I think it's important that we, you know, consider all of these things because, as you know, in emergency, things are never black and white, um, and we and we frequently deal with various shades of grey. Um, and what is a neonate and what isn't a neonate is just another shade of grey. Okay. Cool. When you see that, you know, earlier child, do you generally go, oh? I want to know if they're under that 28 days or do you generally just go there's, you know, but yeah, I do get interested in that because sometimes we do have to, um, we do have to go off days and numbers. Yep. Um, uh, and I always look to see when the date of birth was. And as I was saying before, what their gestation was. So when, how many weeks old were they when they were born? Because that's another really, really important thing in the, in the history and all this. Yeah. And that's yeah. important too, because moms can be, or and dads can be frazzled if the child has come in having a fever and being young. Mate, dads have no idea. Yeah. <laughs> the mum. The mum always has the, the answers. It's so true, mate. I, I go to, you know, Medicare, I say, when's your child's birthday? I remember the day they go, yeah, I go, mate, I, 14, 16 or 18, I don't know. Like, which kid is it? I don't know. Sorry. Yeah. Like, they look at me like I'm an idiot, but I'm like, mate, yeah. I've got Yeah, I, I'm, I'm exactly the same. Someone asked me how old my kid was today, and I was like, I think he's one. <laughs> So we see common presentations to emergency departments uh, and initial diagnosis is like fever. What is considered a fever? Um, and that's, yeah. So what is considered a fever? 
Yeah, this is another really good question. <laughs> um, and again, um, it's a shade of grey. Um, yeah. It's not black and white. And very, you read ten different diet guidelines. You get ten, sometimes ten or eight or nine or whatever different definitions of a fever. So some of them say that it starts at thirty-eight degrees and above. Others say thirty-seven point five. Others say 38.2, others say 38.3. I've even read some guidelines, not Australian ones, but in the States mainly, that say we shouldn't really be worried until 38.5, which I thought was pretty high. Um, The other thing that we need to think about is the method that the temperature was taken. So the American um, Academy of Pediatrics recommends that we use a rectal thermometer to measure temperature. And this is actually the most way of most accurate way of, of measuring a temperature. But as you and I know, like we never do that in the ED. We only do axillary um, and don't even get me started on forehead, like infrared thermometers, like super, super unreliable. Um, For me, I use a cutoff at 38 degrees, 38 degrees axillary temperature. Um, this is in line with most guidelines, especially in this state. And I think it's probably the safest number. Yeah, cool. Yeah. Now, if you have had a story of a temperature of over that at home with an inaccurate method of, you know, gathering that temperature, mm. what do you do about that? Do you just re- regather it in the option that you want to use, like auxiliary, and go with that? Yeah. So this happened to me yesterday, actually, okay. just yesterday. This Mum brought her eight-day-old in with um, a forehead thermometer reading of 38.1 degrees, I think it was. Um, And this happens all the time. All the time they say, oh, you know, it's had a fever at home. I measured it by this. Um, So I brought them in. And then they come into the ED and they're not febrile. Um, Look, there was a really good study that was published about three years ago in the Journal of Pediatrics. I think it looked at about 1,200 infants, like less than two months of age, whose parents brought them into the ED and they said, my kid has had a fever. Um, and they were found to not be febrile in the ED. Um, and they found that the risk of what we call a serious bacterial infection in the kids who were febrile in the ED and were febrile at home was about 13%. Okay. And the risk of having a serious bacterial infection in the parents who, who said they had a fever at home, but they were found to be afebrile in the ED was about 9%. Mm-hmm. So a, around about two thirds of the parents, uh, the kids of parents who said they were febrile at home, but they weren't febrile in the ED mm-hmm. um, had a serious bacterial infection, which is pretty, which yeah. says to me that that's, you know, when a parent says that they've, that child has had a fever, they've had a fever, Yeah. you know? Um, the, the other thing I'd like to say kind of about that particular study is that um, if you don't, you don't really know if a child has a serious bacterial infection unless you work them up for it. And if the kid in front of you isn't febrile, then you're less luck, likely to, to work them up. Mm-hmm. So I think that a lot of the kids might've been missed um, who had serious bacterial infections because they were just afebrile and probably underestimate the incidence of serious bacterial infection. I mean, I guess the take home message would be the same for, you know, the cornerstone of pediatrics. And basically you need to listen to the parents. The child has a fever and we shouldn't fob it off just because they may have used an inaccurate measuring device. Yeah. To measure yeah. That fever. Um, and, or just sometimes when a parent says they felt hot, the yeah. number of times that that's happened and then they said, you know, I didn't have a thermometer, but they felt hot. And then they were febrile in the ED. I cannot, I cannot tell you the number of times that that's happened to me. So it just is further evidence behind the, the, the concept that you need to just take everything that the parents say very, very seriously. Yeah, that's good. Um, when you said that you reported it, we said reported by family or ED, does the clinician, depending on their level of expertise, does they take that story? If the, if the child never gains a fever again, how likely are you are you to work that kid up if you never find a fever in the ED? Yeah, that's a, it's, it's a hard one, isn't it? Because you, we want to have concrete evidence yeah. to do something or to not do something. And if you have a, 
a baby that was apparently febrile at home, uh, but is afebrile in the ED, it's hard to justify, you know, doing things, especially things like, you know, lumbar punctures or anything like that. So that's why um, the other cornerstone of pediatrics, I think, is observation. So the, the one... The one thing that we have available to us in the emergency department is the ability to watch patients really, really closely for a long period of time. And, and that's the advantage that we have over GPs. GPs have 15 minutes to quickly eyeball a kid and try and work out what's going on and then make a, make a decision based on that. And I, I honestly don't know how they do that because it, it's so, so hard. And I, I, I always say that there's nothing wrong with keeping someone in for an extended period of observation, even if that's um, even if that's keeping them in the emergency department over four hours. You know, the numbs will kick me up the backside for this, but um, you know, it's you'd be surprised. I mean, I've surprised myself if I just say, "Let's keep an eye on you for a few hours," yeah. and then something happens like either they become a bit tachycardic mm -hmm. or they spike a temperature so i think that observation um in emergency is really really important and it's something we should utilize as much that's, as we can um i think that's a did that i didn't sorry i didn't expect you to say that i'm sort of like, i don't think i expected myself to say that to no it's actually a really good well i didn't oh, i mean this is a great point i'm like it's so true why don't we just watch them for longer yeah, and sometimes they sometimes they just be, need to be admitted yeah. for longer for a, for a prolonged period of observation, like up to twenty four hours. Yeah, you know? there's that's nothing so, wrong with that. Yeah, it's so true. Um, so why is a fever in a young in young infants and neonates so important? So why do we get why are we so concerned? Uh, we you told us a bit about some percentages of um, bacterial infections. But yeah, why, yeah. Why are we so worried about a febrile neonate? Yeah, look, the way that I like to think about this is is the concept of pretest probability so pretest probability is is essentially the likelihood of something happening before you decide to, to test for that thing okay. for example if you got a bunch of kids who weren't neonates who came to the ed with a fever um the pretest probability for them having sepsis on average before you do any tests or even take a history from them or even examine them is about 0.5%. That's what the literature suggests. So practically speaking, if you saw 100 kids who came into the ED and just had a fever and you automatically sent them home, I mean, I would not advise you doing this, like definitely don't do this. Yes. But if you, if you just sent them home without even seeing them, yeah. you probably wouldn't miss any septic kids as long as they weren't neonates. Yeah. The reason though is if you're a neonate, the likelihood um, of you having, if you have a fever, the likelihood of you having either sepsis or a serious bacterial infection is estimated to be at least 5%. So not 0.5%, but 5%. And some people say that it's actually as high as 30%. Whoa. Yeah. So this is why with neonates, febrile neonates, all bets are off. Yep. Even if they appear well, um, they require not only like a, a full septic workup, but also treatment for sepsis and bacterial infection until you have overwhelming evidence to suggest that they don't have sepsis or they don't have a bacterial infection. There are another, a number of other reasons why fever is so concerning in neonates, and it's mainly related to the fact that fever is, um, well, as you and I mainly understand it on a day-to-day -day basis fever usually means infection right it, it, there are some exceptions to that rule yes. um but if a, a neonate has an infection mm. all of a neonate's immunity is basically what he or she has received in utero from his or her mother so they're, they're completely in terms of antibodies they're immunologically deplete yes. so they've got enough they've got no foot soldiers to fight the infection battle within their body and the other thing is neonates have, have not been alive long enough, have not been ex utero long enough to be exposed to various pathogens to gain immunity from it. You know, they've never had a cold before. Um, neonates also have that, you know, they get a, a first dose of the hep B vaccine when they're born, but otherwise they don't get any vaccinations until they're about six weeks of age. So from a vaccine perspective, they're exactly like an unvaccinated um, child. Yeah. And finally, the, probably the most obvious thing is that neonates have 
like very little in the way of metabolic and cardiovascular reserve. They're not able to mount the adequate um, like physiological response to an infection. So this is why their vital signs and even their physical exam is kind of less reliable because they may not have tachycardia. They may not have tachypnea. You know, sometimes they may not even have a fever, so which is a bit scary to think about. But essentially, if a neonate has an infection, it's um, always trouble, always trouble. Whereas if in an older child who's otherwise well has an infection, you can usually leave them to themselves to fight it off. But how do you approach it when you're a clinician? You come on your shift, let's say you're working in an ED, mm-hmm. bang, someone's triaged them, febrile, yeah. uh, let's say 10-day-old child presents, you know, mum's studying has had some fevers and, they, and they're, they're into in a bed down in paediatrics. Yeah. Uh, and hopefully it's been identified early by a triage nurse that they are febrile. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but how do you approach that as a clinician? Yeah, so... I, I differ from a lot of people, but um, I prefer actually to, to not have these kids in pediatrics. I prefer to have them in resus. Okay, yeah. um, the reason being is that a febrile neonate is potentially a life-threatening thing. Yeah. You know, um, There have been some very sad cases that I've seen and that I'm sure a lot of other people have seen where um, young babies, not necessarily even neonates, but young babies um, develop a fever in the morning and then have passed away by the evening. So these things can get out of hand really, really quickly. And I like to have them in an area that is capable of cardiovascular monitoring, um, senior nurses, senior doctors, and all of the equipment we might need to do Uh, we might need to use um, for any resuscitation, Uh, which brings me to my next point. Obviously it has to follow conventional lines of an airway, breathing, circulation, disability. Any of those things need to be dealt with in the way that, that you and I know how to do. Mm. Um, And we must always remember that neonates can become very hypoglycemic very quickly. So a BSL is often forgotten, especially by me never by nurses, but especially by me, I always, it doesn't matter how much long I've been in medicine, I still always forget glucose. But I, not always, I sometimes do. Um, I forgot one today. So I yeah, one. It's so easy to forget. I just, I read it, it was 2.7. I'm like, just oh, like, man. lethargic. Like we knew I was giving a cat too. I'm like, I'll just check your sugar. I'm like 2.7 ketones and 3.8. Oh, no. Oh, man. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, don't worry. I do it all the time. Um, and it's only because of great nurses that I've got around me who remember to do it um, that it gets picked up. Um, but approaching the febrile neonate, look, ultimately, this is quite an easy thing to do in, in many respects because I know exactly what I'm going to do when I, even before I see the patient. I know that this patient needs all of the investigations we can think of and I know the patient needs to be admitted to hospital for IV antibiotics, et cetera. But there are some things in the history that might guide me um, to what I do later on. So um, when the history is a bit vague, I ask about um, risk factors for neonatal sepsis. So these can be maternal problems like amniotic fluid problems, or if they've had um, the mother's had group B strep cultured from the vaginal swab, or anyone who's had very poor antenatal care. And then the neonatal factors, things like prematurity, like I was talking about before, like an gestational age of less than 38 or 37 weeks, um, a low birth weight, whether the, the baby needed some resuscitation when it was born, whether the baby was born at home or in the hospital, whether there are any problems with the antenatal scans or tests that they have. And of course, the, um, any invasive procedure at the, at the delivery that involved some degree of disruption of the skin or mucosa. So forceps delivery or um, scalp probes being put on or, any, or, or things like that. Um, so that they would be the key things that I, I get on my history. Um, and then my examination um, would just follow, as I said before, along conventional lines. Mm. I guess a quick one, um, when you talked about strep B, is that because strep B is the most common type of bacterial infection that happens with sepsis in neonates? Uh, it what is. Yeah, so it, it de- 
depends on how old the baby is. So they break up um, neonatal sepsis into early onset neonatal sepsis, which usually happens in hospital, but certainly can happen shortly after they return home. And early onset neonatal, neonatal sepsis is sepsis that begins before seven days of um, life. And these are usually either maternal causes, delivery-related causes, or even hospital-acquired yeah. causes. So group B strep is the most common cause of early onset neonatal sepsis. Um, e. coli is also up there, but also other organisms like um, that are in, involved in things like chorioamnionitis, like Klebsiella um, and other anaerobes, they, they can also cause sepsis. Late onset neonatal sepsis is defined as between sepsis that occurs between seven and 28 days of age. Um, UTIs are actually the most common cause of sepsis in this age group oh. um, from E. coli, but GBS, group B strep, is the most common organism overall. Okay. The other ba the bacteria that we need to consider, I always remember it by the mnemonic um, GELS, G-E-L-S. Uh, so G is for group B strep, E is for E. coli, L is for Listeria and S is for Staph aureus. Wow, bro, I haven't heard that. Yeah, I had to, I had to learn it for my exam. <laughs> <laughs> I've done exams. <laughs> yeah, done. When you're looking at a child, um, what are the things that get you concerned? So like you, you said, your ABCDs, obviously, you know, anything to do with an airway issue, that's going to be a big deal. We're going to have a, we're going to obviously be getting a few other professionals down to give us a hand. Mm -hmm. calling, you know, you can call you neonatal code blues or whatever you need to call. Mm. Um, but let's let's just imagine this this child is um let's just obviously they're febrile, mm -hmm. they're bottled, um yeah. maintaining their own airway, and they've got reasonable saps, but they're a bit tachycardic. Um, what other things are you looking for in your exam when you've done your ABCD? Um, what else are you looking out for? Yeah, so um it should be noted that the vast majority of neonates who come in with fever don't have tachycardia um, and don't have tachypnea even. Um, and usually all the story that we've, we've got is either a fever at home or a fever at triage. Um, and the reason for this is just what I was talking about before. The, the, the neonatal physiology is completely different and they don't have the cardiovascular or metabolic reserve to mount an adequate immune response. Um, so you have to ask for things. Well, I, I tend to ask for things in the history and look for things on exam that are really, really non-specific. So poor feeding is a really, really common one. So mum comes in and says, look, um, I don't know what's wrong, but the baby, my baby seems to be falling asleep at the breast after two minutes and then sleeping excessively. And I've had to wake my baby up the last three feeds. So that for me is a really, really worrying thing to hear in an, in a neonate. Um, and even in the absence of fever, I would strongly consider working this baby up fully for sepsis and bacteremia. Um, then we get on, I mean, those are the, the less, obvious things, I guess. Yeah. Um, but then we get on to things on the physical examination. So obvious things like apneas. And this is why I was so, apneas and bradycardia. Um, and this is why I was so um, set upon getting these babies into resus or at least getting them onto a full set of cardiovascular monitoring because um, those can be as well the only signs of um of sepsis like you said modeling and poor perfusion is also important but other things like just tachypnea mm. like isolated tachypnea especially if there's no work of breathing effortless tachypnea like no subcostal recession no nasal flaring no head bobbing they're just breathing at like 60 70 80 breaths a minute that is sepsis that is sometimes some people say that a persistent tachypnea is actually the earliest sign of, of sepsis and i certainly agree with that yeah. Um, and then you got the really weird and wonderful things. So um, just jaundice. Like if a baby comes in really jaundice, which is a very common thing in the neonatal period, um, uh, it, that 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 can definitely be a marker of sepsis. 
And if if they were drawn as a birth, would you be more concerned? No, yeah, no, I wouldn't because there's so, depending on other things like the timing of the jaundice and whether the baby was breastfed and all that kind of stuff and the baby's blood group, et cetera, I wouldn't be, like if I was on the wards having a look at a baby who was jaundiced, the first thing I wouldn't be thinking of is sepsis. I certainly would have it at the back of my mind. Um, But you're right, um, jaundice in in a newborn baby is less concerning than late onset jaundice, like after seven to 14 days of life what are yeah so Lewis, what are some of the mainstay therapies for a patient that is febrile a febrile neonate and some of the treatment you mentioned sort of doing some tests on some of these kids as well what things would you be ordering um, yeah okay yeah. um so in the like i was saying before um in the case of the febrile neonate i'm always worried they all get a workup um, and sometimes they don't even have to be febrile. They can just be unwell appearing. Um, like the other day, a kid, uh, a, I think he was about three weeks old. He came in with just vomiting and he had a little bit of lethargy as well. No fever, no tachycardia, no, no tachypnea. But he ended up getting the full works in, in terms of a septic workup in our department. And he had, um, he had an E. coli bacteremia from a urinary tract infection um so any any neonate whether febrile or just unappearing will get a a full septic workup what that means is a cannula inserted and blood test taken um sending off for a full blood count looking for the white cell count and the absolute neutrophil count as well as the platelet count um also looking at inflammatory markers like crp and procalcitonin um, as we were talking about before with jaundice, I always measure liver function tests. Uh, so bilirubin and, um, an ALT, they all obviously get blood cultures. They all get urine cultures. They may get viral swabs or so nasopharyngeal swabs for COVID, but also an experience, uh, an extended respiratory viral panel. And then they also get a lumbar puncture. Mm-hmm. Um, and after all of these tests have been taken, they get broad spectrum antibiotics, which includes at least ampicillin and gentamicin. Um, but depending on how concerned we are for things like meningitis, we may add on kefataxime and um, HSV encephalitis. We may add on acyclovir as well. Um, they're all admitted to hospital and they're all discharged um, after they have overwhelming evidence to suggest that the cause of their fever um, is not um, a serious thing. Like it's just a, a, a rhinovirus or, or whatever benign virus there is um, circulating out in the community at the moment. Mm. Now, in my 12 years of ED, I've seen we in febrile neonates, we used to sometimes super pubic tap them. This is probably off topic, um, but getting a urine off these kids um what's your go-to do we generally do an in and out catheter um or if you go to cannulate and the kid starts to wee and you can catch a urine sample and it looks fresh Mm. play with that what are your thoughts yeah so the key to doing the to collecting the urine whether you go a non-invasive or an invasive urine is to try and do it first uh like the first thing in your septic workup the reason being that when children um, are cannulated or when babies are cannulated and when babies have lumbar punctures, uh, they get frightened uh, and, you know, they release urine. So they, and you miss it. So I always do the urine culture or the, the, the urine um, specimen collection first. Um, look, depending on who you talk, the, the gold standard for urine collection is, is a super pubic tap. Um, tap. Uh, this is like a lumbar puncture. This is a very difficult thing for parents to conceive of, but it's actually a really benign, um, really, you know, simple procedure. And it gives us really good um, accuracy. Um, and as I said, it's the gold standard. My, just to summarize, my approach would be, first of all, with, with urine to get the urine first in, in your septic workup in terms of collection so you don't miss it. Um, second of all, if it's, if, if the baby, I would very strongly can, if it's a female, sorry, I would very strongly consider doing an in out over a super pubic, 
but if it was a male, I would always do a super pubic over a, um, over an in-out catheter. The one last thing that I always say is if you are doing a super pubic tap, always have someone because the baby's on his or her back, always have someone with a urine jar open at the baby's legs, ready to catch the urine because invariably as soon as you're prepping the stomach uh the urine comes out and you need to have some someone in the slips to to catch that uh urine yeah i've caught heaps even just um when someone's doing a bsl or someone's you know doing yeah. a test and you're like oh sweet it's usually the parents hey they're, yeah. they're the best at catching the urine i find is your rationale for not doing for doing an idc or in and out sorry on a male as opposed to a female just and the anatomical access to the urethra babies tolerate um a suprapubic aspirate over having their male urethra catheterized 100 because you generally run into trauma you've seen a lot of trauma from people seen a lot of trauma it is it's just more painful like you're using a you're using a 24 or sorry you're using a blue needle to get um to, to obtain urine from a suprapubic aspirate, which is a very thin needle, very fine needle. And you'd be using like a whatever French catheter to put up eight centimeters of urethra. It's, yeah. you know, it's not only longer, like, like time-wise to do, um, but it's much more painful over a long period of time. And you only really know this um, after you've done a suprapubic aspirate and you realize how easy it is. Interesting. Um, and the last thing was a VBG. Do you do a VBG on a um, on a child just to look at a lactate or look at a you know a metabolic component that's going on? Yeah, um, maybe not. I, I, I definitely would, especially if there was evidence of poor perfusion. Um, when you talk about lactate, some things that I see that kind of perplex me a bit every now and then is that people are using lactate to diagnose sepsis. Yeah. Um, lactate is not used in the diagnosis of sepsis. Lactate is a marker of organ perfusion, which is a prognostic factor or a grading, um, uh, our help to grade the severity of septic shock. Yes. Um, so just because a baby or you know, an adult for that matter has a normal lactate, it doesn't mean that they don't have sepsis. It just means that they don't have organ dysfunction related to sepsis. Mm. So, Yes, I definitely would use a, a venous blood gas, but I think that it's lower down, uh, but only if the baby was poorly perfused. And I also think that this intervention is much lower down on my um, uh, hierarchy in terms of how important, uh, which important investigations we get. Because you've got to, as you know, like when we cannulate a baby, it's often really difficult to get blood off. And if you have to, yeah. um, if you have to choose what you want to get, I mean, the blood gas will be right down the bottom for me. Which is important. Yeah, no, it, it definitely is. Yeah. I'll tell you raise CRP too. I think CRP is such a good thing that's, um, yeah, you know, inflammatory markers I think is helpful, not just in your surgical patients, but in your sick patients is important. Yeah, inflammatory markers are really important in this, in this setting. Um, not just CRP, but also procalcitonin. Procalcitonin was something that went out of fashion ages ago, but just kind of in the past 10 or 15 years, I'm told, has kind of come back into the vogue a little bit. Yeah. The thing with procalcitonin is if it's low, so if it's less than 0.5, it's like a D-dimer. You can just, you can be almost certain that nothing serious is, is going on. Mm -hmm. uh, and you can almost always stop where where you where you're standing in terms of um if your procalcitonin comes back at less than 0.5 that's really 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 reassuring that nothing is going on and i often use procalcitonin if there is an unclear history of fever um or an unclear history of, of sepsis so if they just come in with with poor feeding and, and a little bit of lethargy and it's actually not looking that serious but i'm worried enough to do a blood test or use a procalcitonin and if the procalcitonin is less than 0.5 i can be very very reassured okay. um, the problem is procalcitonin is almost always more than 0.5 no matter what's going on so, <laughs> yeah <laughs> only useful if it's negative are there any big studies that can help us choose which tests to do on febrile infants and we'll talk about lps quickly um, yeah so um, there are 
heaps. Like people have been talking about how to manage febrile infants for like as long as we've had infants, essentially. Um, in the 80s, there were three big cry. There, were, I think one was called Rochester. Another one was called Milwaukee. Another one, like named after American cities. Yeah. Boston, I don't know what the other one was. I think there were four of them. Yeah. Um, and they looked at identifying infants less than three months of age who were at low risk of serious bacterial infection. And they were pretty good, but the, the problem with these things is they were all um, derived before the introduction of the pneumococcal vaccine, which was in 2000, and the haemophilus vaccine, which was in, uh, I can't remember what it was. It was like the end of the 80s or something. And it was also, they were, all of these things were done before rapid viral testing. So these, those four studies have basically gone out of favour um in 2014 there was an australian study i can't remember his name um but they he called it the step-by-step approach um and essentially um you you basically just uh you have babies less than the age of 21 days you do a urine on them you use the procalcitonin and then that 0.5 cutoff is important. You use a CRP and you use a neutrophil count. And if all of those things are negative in a baby who otherwise looks well and has normal vital signs, you can essentially not do an LP, okay. which, is, which is great news for parents. Um, the problem with this is it's not, this study is that it's not really specific. So it, it casts a very, very wide net and it'll pick up lots of, um, lots of babies who in fact have serious bacterial, uh, do, do not have serious bacterial infections. Um, but it is, it is a pretty, this is certainly the one, um, the step-by-step -step approach forms the basis of the Sydney Children's Hospital and Westmead Kids um, guideline for neonatal sepsis. Um, that was published in 2014. The other one is the PECAN rule. Um, you know that group, I think they're in Canada, Canada, America, yeah. PECAN, the PECAN group. Um, I can't remember what, what it's called. Like, I don't even, I think it might just be called the PECAN rule. I don't know. Um, but this was maybe two or three years ago published. Um, and it's very similar. So, it uses urine, make sure that the baby looks well as opposed to unwell. And then if they appear well, then you do a urine on them, you do some bloods on them and you do a procalcitonin on them. And if they're all negative, you don't have to do an LP and you don't even have to treat for, um, you don't have to treat with antibiotics unless they become unwell. Um, the problem with this second study, it's very, very hot off the press. It's only, as I said, two or three years old. Um, it was a pretty small cohort, so only 2,000 babies were studied, whereas all of the other studies were at least three or 4,000 babies enrolled. Um, it hasn't really been formally validated yet, so people haven't incorporated it into their own you know, study, and they applied it to febrile neonates applying to them, uh, presenting to their emergency departments um, and saying whether this rule works for them or not. Mm. And the other thing is, and it just relates to procalcitonin, um, that procalcitonin is not available everywhere. So I, I was working at a, at a hospital a couple of years ago and they just straight up did not have pro, procalcitonin. Um, and that's very common. Um, like it's not the most ordered test in, in the world. PECAN and, and, um, and step-by-step -step would be the ones that I refer to the most. I guess LPs, like obviously you make a differential for doing a lumbar puncture. Um, mm. And they're always, oh, I find they can go really well or take a bit longer. Sometimes LPs, it just depends on. Yeah. Well, yeah. I, I must admit um, throughout my training and even like, I, mean, I haven't done an LP in a while, um, but I think of all the procedures that I did throughout my training, like cannulation, arterial lines, central lines, chest drains, intubation, whatever. LPs were by far the worst for me. Like I had at one stage, I had like a 20% hit rate. They, yeah. I just, they, they were soul destroying. Yeah. So I know exactly what you're talking about um, when you said they can go really well versus when they take ages. I was the guy who took ages and still missed. 
Because <laughs> you can see even clinicians get frustrated. Like I, I yeah. even I know an ED doctor years of training last week saw him doing Alpine. Just his face was like mm. almost defeated. Like oh, you know, yeah. get it got in the end, but it was almost like I just need this last thing of my septic workup, which does take some time. Yeah, and I'm getting it. Um, yeah. Yeah, and for parents too, it's a, you know, watching your kid rugged up in a little ball while they shove needles into their spine. Mm. Actually, that's what we're doing. Um, it sucks. Yeah, it's so after you've gone to them and said, oh, you know, we've got to do this thing called MLP. It's not a big deal. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm really good at it. And then you, <laughs> you're not good at it. <laughs> I'm really yeah. good at it. It's not today. <laughs> yeah, not ever. Um, like, I know it's a dumb question, but like, we're already gonna are you already have you already treated with antivirals before you get to the stage of doing the lp or is this while you're pending a result from the lp almost always so it needs to be like um best practices is things need to be in this order urine either super pubic or or just clean catch or, or in out or whatever bloods um and, and viral swabs of the, of the nose, LP, antibiotics and antivirals. Yeah. That, that's the sequence that it, that it ideally should yeah. take. The reason being, if you give antibiotics and antivirals first, you can affect um, the results of what you, what you get. For example, if you give an IV antibiotic like gentamicin, and then you take a, a urine sample a couple of hours later, the gentamicin will be in the urine and it'll kill off any bacteria that were there and it can affect. And the same thing can happen with, with a lumbar puncture and, and kefitaxime, for example. Um, so people get really fixated on doing these things in a sequence. And, and to an extent, I do agree with them. The other thing, the thing that people have to remember though, is we can do these tests called PCRs. So you can do like a, um, you can do a HSV PCR, which won't be affected by acyclovir. Um, you can do pneumococcal PCRs, you can do um, meningococcal PCRs, and they, they can be in the blood, they can be in the CSF. They're much more expensive. They take longer to come back. But what I'm trying to say is if you have to get the antibiotics or antivirals in because the kid's so sick before you do the LP or you can't get the LP or whatever, um, it's not the end of the world. And does the golden window still apply in sepsis for giving antibiotics in before that hour if they are septic for pediatric patients or neonates? Nominally, yes. Um, but they've been, been very, as far as I'm aware, and I might be just ignorant here, but as far as I'm aware, I don't think there have been any studies that randomise kids, randomise neonates um, into getting antibiotics within the hour versus not, um, be, simply because it's, it's unethical to do so. Um, I think a general rule of thumb, and this harks back to what I was saying at the very beginning, is these kids need to be seen very quickly. They need to be seen in preferably a resus setting. And all of these um, history, exam, and investigations need to be done quickly. And fluids, like, do you still go with the whole 10 per, if, if they are shock, 10 per kilo to 20 per kilo? For um, resus, same thing? Yeah, absolutely. Um, again, there's been very little in the way of um, of fluid administration um, in sepsis research um, in this particular age group. There's a study going on at the moment called the PROMPT study, Sydney Children's Hospital, I think Westmead as well, are both sites for that, that randomised fluid boluses in sepsis. Yeah. And there was that famous FEAST trial that occurred in Africa some time ago which of course had a, had a look at all of this, but generally speaking, um, no one knows, no one knows what the ideal amount of fluid is before you should get, before you should start things like inotropes and no one really knows what markers you should use in terms of, um, guiding your fluid resuscitation. Is it lactate? Is it perfusion? Is it heart rate? Is it blood pressure? No one knows. Um, what I tend to use um, and I use this because it's reliable and it's easy to do is cat refill. Cat refill is so efficient um, and if done properly can really help you. Mm, that's good. Um, and what are some of the non-bacterial infections that cause fever in neonates? A lot of the common viruses and the common story that you'll get uh, for a fever in a neonate is there is an older, t- older sibling who had, goes to daycare and has brought home a snotty nose. 
Um, and as you know, there are heaps of different viruses that can cause like a snotty nose, a bit of vomiting, diarrhea. At the moment, we're seeing a lot of adenovirus. Before, we were seeing a lot of RSV. We can never forget about COVID. Enterovirus, they're all causes of, um, of neonatal fever that aren't bacterial. The most concerning for me, though, um, is herpes simplex. Um, so herpes simplex is um, like it's a potentially devastating condition and you always need to consider it when you see a febrile neonate. Um, we were talking before about history um, and an assessment of, of, neon, of neonates who have fevers. I always ask about um, if there was a, a history in the, when the, if it's an early onset sepsis, so within the first seven days, whether the mother had fevers during the, um, during the delivery or whether the mother had genital HSV lesions, so essentially genital herpes that was active um, to either throughout the pregnancy, but especially during, um, during labour. Um, the contact history of cold sores. So there was a baby I treated, I think maybe it was March this year, so like five months ago or whatever. Um, really, really sick, had a disseminated HSV infection and liver failure. And very, very sadly, uh, one of the family members had cold sores and that's presumed to be the way that the baby contracted the illness, contracted the illness. Yeah. Um, seizures. So a neonatal seizure, you've got to always be thinking of HSV encephalitis. Um, a, B, C, D, E, E for exposure. So cannot stress enough getting these babies exposed, getting every bit of clothing off them, even though they scream and they're cold and all that kind of stuff. Um, having a look at every single square inch of their skin to see if there are any vesicles, having a look in the mouth to see if there are any oro cutaneous lesions, um, like vesicles in the mouth, like if they, have they got their own cold sores? Um, some studies, I've been told that there have been, I don't know of them, but there are some studies that suggest that hypothermia, so a baby who comes in hypothermic, which of course you need to be thinking about sepsis, that's a, that's a positive predictive marker for HSV infection. Like it makes you hypothermic as opposed to hyperthermic. Oh. Yeah. Um, and jaundice, jaundice was a big one. So the baby that I was talking about before with the disseminated HSV infection was also really, really jaundiced. Um, and that was because he had a hepatitis associated with his disseminated HSV infection. So HSV likes to infect the liver, unfortunately. With respect to your investigations um, on the LP, if you've got a high monocyte count, as opposed to polymorphonucleocyte count in the CSF, um, that's suggestive of a viral cause. And if I saw that, I would always start acyclovir. Um, viral meningitis picture? Yeah, viral meningitis, exactly. Yeah, so low, high white cell count overall, high, poly, uh, high um, monos and low poly, polys or negative polys. Um, and also in, in your blood tests, looking for things like thrombocytopenia, lymphopenia, and then your liver function test. So, high bilirubin, high ALT, um, all suggestive of, like I, I look at all of those things and if there's even like the slightest bit of trouble in any of that, like the platelets are a tiny bit low, I just start them on acyclovir. Yeah. And we can, we can always do a test to rule it out in the CSF. Okay. Like you've seen some viral kids who are pretty sick too, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah like... There is a such thing. There is such thing as viral septic shock and viral sepsis. Definitely, yeah. yeah. Um, there's a whole bacteria, is it? Oh, well, the kid we swabbed who ended up having like so many things. They like you know th four viruses in one or three viruses in one swab, and I was like, far out on the viral. Panel. Yeah. Like, so oh. my record, and this admittedly wasn't my patient. This was a colleague of mine. She did a swab on a patient, and she found seven viruses. Whoa. Yeah. Macro. How do you educate parents in relation to fever and sepsis? So let's say you see a kid, like you said, you've done your investigations, you, you're treating with all your antibiotics. How does Lewis approach the parents? How do you sort of have that conversation? Parents who bring in um, their newborn babies with a fever are freaked out. Like 
I've never seen a chill parent in one of these situations. And a lot of them, in hindsight, will, will refer to it as like one of the worst days of their lives, even if the child ends up being fine. Um, so all of these, and, and they're, they're coming to you and they probably don't know you or your, your colleagues from a bar of soap. They might be sleep deprived. Um, they don't know what's going on and they don't know what to trust and who to trust. So they're in a really, really vulnerable situation. So you always need to have these discussions really, really delicately, because as soon as you get them offside, that you're gonna find um, that what you want to do is very, very, very difficult, because you're gonna have to convince the, the parent that you have, to, you have to stick a needle into their child's back, um, which is a really difficult thing um, for them to hear and for them to agree to. So what I usually say, first from the, from the outset, I always make sure that I I don't, um, my facial, I always make a lot of, uh, I take a lot of care of my facial expressions. So it's a bit difficult after COVID because you're wearing a mask. Yeah, I always make, a, make a, a point of looking as concerned as I am on the inside because I'm, I'm always really worried about these kids. Um, and then, you know, I, I ask, I let them talk, let them talk, let them talk. And then I, I generally have a really frank discussion with them. And I start off with something that I, I similar to what I said to you. And I say things like, look, if your child was two years old and came in with a fever, I wouldn't be too worried because the likelihood of him having a bad infection would be something like 0.5% your baby's only two weeks old. So the likelihood of her having a bad infection is actually more like 30%. Mm. Um, so what we like to do is we like to treat aggressively and investigate aggressively and be proven wrong rather than watch and wait, if you know what I mean. Um, and then I go into, this means collecting some urine. So I start off with the easy, easier ones. Yeah. Doing a blood test and inserting it in a drip in. Um, and also, then I talk about the LP, and as, as we're talking about, the LP is always the most difficult. Yeah. And some sometimes I uh, I just say, look, there's a test called a lumbar puncture, which sounds really, really scary, but it's actually not that big a deal, and it gives us really, really important information. And then I look at their face, and either they like start crying or. Um, they're, they're attentively listening or, and I just gauge the situation. And then if, then I just basically explain the procedure. And then if they have more questions, a good thing that I sometimes ask is, did you have an epidural? Or if they were born by Caesar, do you remember when you had the spinal? And then they say, yes, yeah, I remember that. And you say, oh, well, that actually is much more invasive. That goes through a, a different layer of the spine. We're injecting blood into your, uh, medication into your spine, and it, if it's an epidural, it actually stays there. So that's much more invasive, and they can all remember that, and they knew that it wasn't that much of a big deal. Um, and then I just uh, I go from there. And look, I'm not an expert at this. I have stuffed up these these discussions and got the parents offside a number of times. I've had to have people bail me out, um, and I've had to bail other people out people out because it's such a delicate topic, isn't it? It's such you know, imagine if you're in, especially if you're a first time parent, we've never had a sick kid and someone wants to do all these things to your newborn baby. Mm. I think what you're raising is good. Like we make mistakes and sometimes we don't articulate things in the best tone. We have the best interest at heart. Like we're, we're you know, you do all your study so that you can recognize these kids and treat these kids. But then it might be in the way that you say something the way the parents like, what do you mean? You know, and you kind of, like you said, yeah. You're, yeah, you're, exactly. You're actually trying to do it for their benefit, and you can have pay yeah. refuse LPs or refuse in that yeah. yeah, and that's the trap that you can fall into. Like as nurses and as doctors and healthcare professionals, it's just it's a no-brainer for us. Of course, your kid needs an LP, and if you don't need an LP, that's crazy. You crazy business. Like you, yeah. you're just insane. Like you're not doing what you what's right by your kid. Yeah. But it's in a lay person who doesn't know anything about that. They don't know the statistics. They don't know the, um, the ramifications of doing or not doing uh, things. They're probably not even aware of the concept of a febrile neonate. Yeah. 
Um, so you just got to be so careful with what you say and how you say it and not appear condescending. I'm only saying these things because these are mistakes that I've made in the past. Um, and you, you're exactly right. Like these are traps that we can easily fall into. Um, and it's an art to do this properly. And it's, I'm still learning how to do it today. I really love what Lewis was talking about here. So often or not, as an emergency clinician, we really focus on the skills. We really focus on, you know, getting the right diagnoses or really focus on making sure we're doing a clinical skill well. And these are really important um, things to have as in emergency. And even as a paramedic um, or a student nurse or a doctor, these are really important skills that we need. However, sometimes we forget about the human factors, you know, having those um, conversations with families. Um, that are so important um, in the patient's trajectory. And they're really important in us building that therapeutic relationship with family and the greater um, family that come into hospital. I love how Lewis was saying that, you know, he's made mistakes before, maybe he's had interactions before, where he's needed other people in the team to help. Um, and I think that's so important. I love the honesty of Lewis in this. Um, so often we want to think that we can do everything. But it's really important to remember that there are times when we need other people to step in. Um, and it's also really cool. Um, it makes me love podcasting when someone can open up and feel, you know, I guess, you know, free enough to sort of express themselves that they've had situations like this. Um, so often not, we don't talk about these situations. And it's so great to hear Lewis talk about this. Even as an emergency consultant, he's had situations in his career where this has happened. Um, so I guess my thought for us listening out there is, have you had situations like this? Um, have you found yourself in a situation like this where you've maybe a family's misunderstood what you're trying to say? Or do you find it hard to have conversations with family? Um, I'd love to know um, what you guys are thinking out there. So yeah, let me know. said it's like um it is an art and those difficult conversations are definitely need to be treated with grace but do you mm. it hard when you are intelligent you have all these things you're thinking about your brain's trying to go through the you know your 100 different diagnoses your gels your you know what the hell's going mm. on with your kid, um viral different and then you're trying to have to stop for five seconds and have this difficult conversation and you might have other patients on the go as well it can be you know, a hard thing to do. Yeah, it is a hard thing to do. Um, but yeah, I think in, in medicine and nursing, healthcare, especially pediatrics, trust is just so important. You've got to get your parents on side. If they don't trust you, you're done. You may as well just ask another doctor to start looking after them because they're not really going to, you're not, everything is going to be so much more difficult. Um, so yes, you've got other things going on. Yes, it's busy. Yes, you haven't had a dinner break and all that kind of stuff, but it is 100% worth it to sit down, to listen, to have a very frank discussion, to use eye contact and to be very, very firm, but um, as you say, graceful in your approach to these people, because um, it will make your job so much easier, yeah. so much easier. So true. Like you said, even like when you're doing a cannula and you get the parent, can you hold this, you know, urine, can you do this? And they've got to, mm. you know, and they catch you like, oh, thank you so much. You know what I mean? Like yeah. they're on your team, they're like, oh no, you know, they, they make it easier. Um, they do, they do, they 100% do, yeah. You've worked through a pandemic, you're doing dual training, you've got kids, you've got a family, you're a busy bloke. Um, how do you keep going? What keeps you motivated? Um, but from a perspective thing, it's just a job yeah. um, and it pays the bills. And like, as you said, I've got two kids and I've got another kid coming and got a wife and a house and all of that kind of, all of the work stuff when I spend time with my kids and my family, that just pales in comparison. Yeah. It's just not, it's not important. The pandemic, whatever, you know, I'm, I'm very lucky. I'm all of this, all of this stress at, at work and the pandemic 
um, that's terrible, but I, I'm very, also a very lucky person. I've got um, a great family. I've got a great bunch of friends and I'm healthy. So um, perspective is really, really important. Um, life is not just about work. Life is not just about COVID. Um, and I think that that would be the number one thing. Um, in closing, where do people find resources? We're going to put some in the show notes for anyone who wants to read about um, febrile neonates. Mm. Uh, what resources would you recommend to anyone listening? There is a really good resource source, sorry, called um, Don't Forget the Bubbles. It's a it's like a consortium of people who organize um, both courses as well as um, uh, really good conferences. Um, and a lot of, they've got this free open access medical education stuff. Um, and there's a, there's an article by a guy, I think his name is Dennis Wren, R-E-N, uh, on well-appearing febrile babies or well-appearing febrile infants. And that summarizes the literature quite well. Um, Last year, there was a, a, an article published in Pediatrics by a guy called Pantel, um, and that summarises the American Academy of Pediatrics recommendation for well-appearing febrile infants. Um, so if you want a little bit more information, I would direct you towards, towards that. Awesome, mate. That's so good. Um, I'll put them in the show notes. I'll get them off you and put them in the show notes, people, so they can just one click away from finding all those cool resources. Yeah, no worries. Um, dude, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Oh, thanks for having me, man. It's been a long time coming and I'm, I'm happy we did it. The EDGM podcast would like to acknowledge the traditional owners on the land on which this recording is occurring today, the Darabal people, and pay my respects to the elders past, present, and emerging. It may not be my birthday, but I just want to celebrate. Cause it's a good